What's up, everybody? Welcome to Show Me the Meaning, Wisecrack's movie podcast. Show me the meaning! Yes, that is indeed Ryan's <laughs> voice again. He's back. I'm What's back, up, everybody? Baby. Ryan's back. My name is Jared, joined here by the Wisecrack crew. We got Ryan. What up, film fans? And returning again for a long, it's been a long time, Rebecca, it is has. Rebecca Sinclair. How's it going, Rebecca? Uh, so happy to be back, Jared. Yeah, really great to have you. Really great to have you. So today, we're talking about the 2014 movie Interstellar, directed by Christopher Nolan, starring Matthew McConaughey and Anne Hathaway. As always, let's go around and get some first impressions. What was it like the first time you watched this movie? What was it like revisiting for this podcast? Let's start with Ryan. What's up, Ryan? Oh, man. Uh, uh, not much. Once again, great to be back. I, I don't know if you saw, but I was on the Film House, the Fun House Film Podcast last week and it was a fucking disaster i did <laughs> see that man i feel like i'm, gl- I'm glad to be home <laughs> my home base here <laughs> so, you know what home I'm base saying? man yeah you can shit on anything here we love you oh thank you uh you know <laughs> it's the format's different it's screwed with my head all right so interstellar i think that um the first i would call this mid-shelf nolan you know right up there with some of his good stuff not at his best stuff mid-shelf nolan top shelf mcconaughey Bottom shelf and Hathaway. That's kind of how I would put this. <laughs> um, and um, you know, it's a. It, when I first saw it, I, I definitely think that this is it, this does not really reward too many uh, uh, subsequent viewings, repeat viewings, just because you know the first time you see it, like like I, it was pretty jaw dropping. I definitely thought many times, how the fuck is this movie going to end? And uh, how are they going to end this insane setup that they've already uh, that they put? What's going to happen when they go in the black hole? And it delivered, I think, on the first time you see it. Like it is a batshit insane ending, and it, but it's perfectly it works with its within its own logic, kind of. <laughs> um, but then, yeah, every other time, once you know what's going to happen, it does lose a little something. But whatever, who cares? Uh, so yeah, I really love this movie's effects. I definitely felt from the first time and every time that, that that's what sticks with me the most. Every time I see it is just how amazing and kind of seemingly realistic, pretty realistic the effects are, even though there's walking robots that are uh, <laughs> walking on water and stuff. It's cool. I, uh, I really enjoy the futurism aspect of this whole thing. And uh, that's what I think about it. Funhouse, uh, not Funhouse, uh, uh, Interstellar. I give it an eight out of 10. So, did you rewatch it on 1.3 speed? No, I actually didn't. I watched. I didn't okay. think about that. I should have. You know, I, I when I saw the running time, I'm like, ooh, I wonder if Ryan's not going to watch the whole thing on 1.0 <laughs> speed. I I watched it in 1.0 speed, although I did think about 1.3 because damn, it's long. But I gave it the true blue regular watch, and I'm glad I did. But before we get to me, let's talk about Rebecca. What'd you think about this movie? Um, so yeah, the first time I saw it. It had just been hyped so much, and it had been especially hyped up in the science fiction community um, for having real science in it. And it does have some real science in it, and it also has a lot of total bullshit science in it. And so we left, we, as if I speak for the scientists here, (laughs) um, we left sort of being like, well, that wasn't really what we were kind of expecting. You find basically that same qualities. I mean, you had a better in 2001, right? The space. So it it wasn't as impressive on that front. And I was, I was pretty disappointed with that. But also I've got to admit that I'm pretty uninterested in some of its central questions about like the existential question of humanity. Do we deserve to exist? 
how should we propagate ourselves by inseminating the universe, you know, leaving Earth? I just like, I don't know how interesting I find that particular question. And I, I definitely don't think I find Interstellar's answers to it particularly interesting. So it didn't really impress me on a scientific level, which was the way that it marketed itself, especially to the um, already existing science fiction fans. Um, and it didn't really impress me that much philosophically because, yeah, it just kind of had its own logic going where love suddenly becomes a force of the universe. And, and yeah, I just, I don't know. We'll get more into that later, but, but I will say, so I left the theater, like just hating it, basically resenting it in fact. Um, but I will say that this time I felt much more charitable and I thought, okay, it's, it's more tolerable the second time. I'm not, I don't have really high expectations. In fact, it's better than I remembered it being, um, which was pretty, which was pretty bad. So so I feel better about it this time. I would not give it an 8 out of 10. Um, I'd give it more like a 5 or 6 out of 10 for me. Woo, man, that's a, that's a rough score. Yeah. So what can I say? I stand by it. I stand by it. <laughs> well, I was not expecting that from you, Rebecca, because when I mentioned, hey, we're doing the Interstellar podcast, you were like, oh, I've got some thoughts about that movie, and I was really expecting you to come <laughs> saying that you loved it. Uh, but that's fine. But I, had I want thoughts. everyone to be honest here. I have lots here. of thoughts. They're just not. No, good. Yeah. Good. I'm, I'm glad to hear that. I've only seen this movie twice. When I saw it in the theater, all I really remember, well, first of all, there was a lot of hype around this movie, but I remember, and I'm curious if you remember it the same way, Ryan, is that the initial reaction was disappointing, dumb, and the the criticism that definitely hit me the most when I was in the theater is the mix is horrible and it's too loud in the theater. I, I remember that shit too, and, and I, I saw it at the Universal City Walk, and I definitely remember going. Am I the only one hearing this? And you know what the weird thing is, is that I felt the same way about Dunkirk. Chris Nolan does weird sound mixing stuff for his big movies. I, yeah, I was. I saw it late. I saw it weeks after it came out. I was with Jacob, and we, and because I had heard that people were saying that it wasn't smart like his other movies, I suspended my expectations completely. And I was really able to enjoy it just on a visual level. But upon watching it the second time for the podcast, I kind of had this eureka moment where I'm like, oh, yeah, Christopher Nolan is way smarter than me. And I kind of feel like I know what he's going for here. And I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Now, how, I, I was never one that that bought into the this is super stupid because to me it was like very it was a little ridiculous but it was very ambitious like when when so Anne, ambitious when hannah hathaway is doing that love speech that is like a we're swinging for the fucking fences moment <laughs> in you cinema got, you're history. goddamn right same you're thing goddamn right same thing with the ending when they're in the vortex or whatever like that's just like we are this is bold big budget filmmaking and you're either gonna love it or hate it and i feel like like it's a very divisive movie for that reason, but I, I'm on board of getting in Chris Nolan's head, suspend my disbelief, and I liked it. I will say I don't think the B plots work at all. No. Like the yeah. plots on Earth, the whole thing with Coop's son's family getting sick from farming and Murph burning yeah. the crops to kidnap the kids and take them back back underground. Christopher Nolan has these amazing moments. So, for example, in The Dark Knight, especially at the end of the second act, we have all of these intercutting. We have all these different subplots going on at the same time, and we're intercutting between the three of them, and they all climax at the same time, and we're all on the edge of our seat. But in this movie, I'm seeing Matthew McConaughey do something like he's trying to dock the ship back on the big ship, and that's really tense. And then it cuts back to his daughter on Earth, and I'm like, what is going on here? Who is Topher Grace? What the fuck is going You know what I'm saying? So that, that didn't really work for me at all. And I think that's the big criticism of this movie is, oh, 
I appreciate its ambition on an intellectual level and on a thematic level and just on a technical level. But at the end of the day, if it doesn't really execute on the dramatics, then you're left with a movie that just doesn't work. And um, I'm not saying that it's so flawed like that, but there are there are certainly parts that are better than others. I rather we had just stayed with McConaughey on the the ship the whole time. But there are definitely elements that don't work. Well, I was just going to say that for me, um, I mean, yeah, we don't have to get into this right this second um, because you just probably won't be able to stop me once I stop once I start. But. But for me, the, the, all the secondary plots are basically just an excuse to sort of lay this kind of climate crisis narrative down in a very uh, unsophisticated um, and uh, not very thought out way. So th- it's almost as if the characters aren't even really there for themselves. They're, they're just there to exemplify the crisis that humanity faces um, and the way that that crisis is tearing families apart and you know yada 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 but but it, it's it's as if the characters themselves uh don't really need to be developed uh, or that you don't really need to be able to empathize with them very well uh because you just need to be able to get this kind of punch you in the face blunt point that shit's really really bad on earth and look at these characters fighting because they disagree on you know how they should handle that and, and that's more or less sufficient. It, and, it, and so even, I mean, I like Nolan. I'm not maybe as big a fan as as everybody else at Wisecrack seems to be. But I nevertheless respect his filmmaking. And I did think this was an uncharacteristic move for him to kind of use characters in this way. But but to me, it fits with the way that he sort of addressed the kind of shoddy way that he seemed to address something like climate crisis throughout the whole movie anyway. So, but but yeah, I think, I think it's not a coincidence that those two things... Uh, overlap basically. Uh, yeah I, I pretty much totally agree with you and but also i'd add to that like like he, you know chris nolan always gets accused of being this kind of cold filmmaker and i see where people are saying uh, or why they say that because not only do they do what you just said where you know sometimes the characters aren't fully fleshed out characters they kind of stand in for stuff or ideas but also he he does his like weird nicholas rogue cutting between scenes yeah, technique in yeah. every movie and that kind of does generate or that's kind of a distant cold style if you if if you use it kind of like how he does where where you're you know you're like you said Jared you're in one really intense thing and then you're kind of cutting back to this thing and, and it's almost like a puzzle you're having to put together supposedly but I, I think he kind of overdoes that style sometimes when you when he shouldn't yeah, there's a lot working against him. First of all, like Ryan said, he has a reputation for being very cold and cranial. And in this movie, he doubles down on emotion. So good for him on trying. But secondly, <laughs> the one thing I would the one thing I would disagree with Rebecca on oh, yeah. is that is that th- this thing of him using characters as mouthpieces for exposition actually does happen a lot in his work, especially in Inception. Yeah, I agree um, it does. I just think it usually works better. Than this. Okay, sure. That's the claim. Yeah. But at the same time, when your movie is so ambitious and seemingly about everything, how else are you going to get this information conveyed? Maybe he should have done what Kubrick did and just don't even try to have characters with 2001 A Space Odyssey. Just make them deliberately cardboard cutouts and make your robot the most interesting character in the movie. Which I think, frankly, he still might have been. <laughs> I think Tars <laughs> yeah, still might have been. Tars so. is definitely the coolest Tars is great. In this movie. <laughs> Uh, the other thing, uh, this is the last thing I'll bring up before we go into the recap, is that 
One of the criticisms, there are a lot of like plot criticisms that I'm usually like, yeah, yeah, let the guy, whatever. But the one that really gets me is that Matthew McConaughey doesn't seem to give a fuck about his son. Yeah. Like, especially when he shows up in the future, he's on the space station, he wakes up, he immediately says, is my daughter still alive? He never mentions his son. He doesn't give a shit. <laughs> yeah. But I wonder if that's actually a plot. Uh, yeah, I, want, I wonder if that's a plot hole, because in fact, it seems consistent with basically the rest of Matthew McConaughey's character throughout the entire film, and indeed his his values kind of altogether. So I, I'd make a case that, that that might even have been very intentional. So They had a special bond, Jared, you know. Yeah, I, I don't son, doubt I mean, that they he, had a special he, he bond. He makes a point of saying he hates farming. He doesn't really care. Like, even at the very beginning, his son's just, like, basically there to show this contrast with Murph, yes, who's, like, exactly. the real benefactor of his life. And, I mean, the whole film, all he does is value, like, space travel and exploration and science and thought. And he thinks he, he literally, at one point, says, like, taking care of the Earth is basically, like, a bullshit thing to do. Right. So, I mean, it, so to me, it seems actually... Like, well, of course he doesn't care that much about his son. His son represents the things that he thinks are the least interesting part of humanity. I mean, of course that yeah, doesn't mean you don't love but him, he but can, still. He can, he can ask about his son, like, maybe second or third. First he can ask, where's Murph? Then he can ask, where's the food? And then he can ask, oh, what about my son? Yeah, you should but at least to ask. omit him yeah. entirely is nuts, <laughs> yeah. at least to me. Anyway, I don't want to dwell on this too much. Let's go into a recap. All right, so in a war-torn, post-climate catastrophe vision of Earth, ex-pilot Cooper and his daughter Murph decode a mysterious message in their library left by what Murph describes as a ghost. The message leads them to a covert NASA station where an old mentor of Coop's, Dr. Brand, tells him humans won't survive on the planet for long. So he hires Coop to pilot a spacecraft and investigate a wormhole that could lead them to a new inhabitable planet. Coop and the crew, including Dr. Brand's daughter, enter the wormhole and try to extract data from one of the potential planets, but an error in their plan costs them 23 years due to relativity. Murph, now Coop's age, finds out that Dr. Brand's equation that would bring the people of Earth to their new home was a sham. Humanity's only hope lies in the embryos on Coop's ship. But Murph continues to search for an answer. Coop and Brand land on a planet where an astronaut on an earlier identical mission, Dr. Mann, has been waiting with promising data. However, it turns out there's no future for humanity on this planet, and Mann has been lying. Mann tries to kill Coop and take command of the ship, but fails, blowing up his craft. Coop then attempts to fly near the black hole in order to thrust them toward the last planet where Dr. Brand's love, Dr. Edmonton, is. Without enough fuel, he sends only her and falls into the black hole. Now without his ship, Coop finds himself in some kind of three-dimensional representation of fifth-dimensional space built for him by fifth-dimensional beings trying to save humanity, where he peers from behind the bookshelf where Murph saw the ghost when she was a child. Murph, too, realizes that he was the ghost, and he transmits the data she needs to complete Dr. Brand's equation. Cooper wakes up in a fully populated space station in the future and meets an old-age Murph who tells Coop to find Bran who's alone on a habitable planet. End of movie. Hey, all you true crime fans. This is Mike Ferguson. And this is Mike Morph. And we'd like to invite you to listen to our podcast, Criminology. Launched in 2017, we've covered a variety of strange cases from murders to missing persons. Some of the cases are ones you may not have heard of. Other cases we cover are some of the most historic in true crime. There are 200 episodes of Criminology available to binge on right now. And new episodes come out every Saturday night. Subscribe to Criminology today, wherever you listen to your podcast. How did you get the sound effects? <laughs> I can't tell you that. 
Fifth, oh my god! Fifth dimensional beings gave it to me. <laughs> That's yeah. Okay. So I, I want to just start with talking about big takeaways from this movie. And um, I've got it all written down. You guys just want me to go for it. Or Rebecca, is there anything in particular you want to talk about? I mean, go I'll, for it. I'll stop you. Yeah. <laughs> Connect four, Jared. Go. For, I, w- I would just go all for right. it. Yeah. So to me, the big takeaway of this movie is all these things like emotion, family, love, human connection need to be incorporated into a scientific framework or a framework that we use to study the world around us or to solve problems. So the fundamental ideas of science, as Coop says, he says, record the facts, analyze, get to the how and why, then present your conclusions, should not mean that we ignore the imagination or uncertainty. We should constantly be looking for a way in which the irrational parts of humanity can offer a path when the rational ones point to certain doom. Basically, the whole mission of the movie is always go beyond, go beyond. So... You know, this is essentially what Matthew McConaughey says. He says, well, we look, used to look up into the sky and wonder at our place in the star- stars. Now we just look down and worry about our place in the dirt. And then later he says, it's like we've forgotten who we are, Donald. Explorers, pioneers, not caretakers. And this is symbolized in a couple ways in the beginning. That's essentially the thematic interplay between the whole movie or through the whole movie. So at the beginning, we learn that Murph's school has corrected textbooks to suggest that the moon landing was fake for the sole purpose of keeping humanity focused on what's right in front of them. And then in the same vein, they make Coop's son just be a farmer instead of any greater ambition he might have because that's what the world needs. They are, in a sense, giving up. So they're reacting to this notion that pioneer attitudes, beliefs, and creativity are wasteful and irresponsible. And Nolan is essentially saying that if we adhere to that notion, we will, to quote Dylan Thomas, go gently into that good night. And then there's this whole thing with Murphy's Law that they talk about. So one can read Murphy's Law as that everything that can go wrong will go wrong. But the other way to read it is that, as Cooper says, everything that can happen will happen and that we should spend more time discovering new things that can happen rather than relegating to or rather than just resigning to all the bad shit that's happened previously. So I think ultimately the movie is saying, in contrast, we need to do radical things that come from the heart. We need to allow emotion to guide us, like going to Dr. Edmonton's planet, because originally they say, oh, no, Anne Hathaway, we're not going to your lover's planet. You're blinded by your emotions. We're going to go to Dr. Mann's planet because there's evidence and data, and then that ends up being a shit show. And then so even when a legendary scientist's gravity equation can't be solved by decades of math, Murph goes to where her heart takes her, in this case, to the ghost. And then I guess you can also build in the whole burn down crops to take a chance on your superstition to reveal the answer that saves all humanity. So basically the necessity of incorporating the uncertain into our frameworks that seek to solidify certainty. Yeah, so and and then I think this even goes another meta level, which I'm going to. See, I still got the sound thing. So, and the, <laughs> this piece of art is something that can inspire people to go beyond because just as Coop dies face first into uncertainty, the film itself is monumentally ambitious in a number of ways. Um, so, I think this movie is a call to adventure. It's a belief in the power of will, creativity, the human spirit to thrust us into the future. It's a celebration of the pioneer ethos and a celebration of the uncertain. 
That's what I got. What do you guys think? <laughs> wow. That's a beautiful synopsis of the themes in this movie, Jared. Couldn't put it That's what myself. I got. The, 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 well, that's the, a very the, generous the, synopsis of the themes in the movie, I'd say. Hey, <laughs> but, hey. They, but, yeah. Okay. No, good, good. I want I want to hear the reactions. Uh, I, I, I would add to that that, that the, uh, what I got out of the movie, too, was just that, like, like love is kind of a part of evolution or, or a part of our DNA so much that, you know, it, it's it's kind of it truly is the foundation of what's driving us kind of like an instinct that we got to realize and, and be self-aware about uh, uh, that, that, that is driving us kind of like you're saying, put it into our thought process, put it into the scientific, you know, base uh, uh, reasoning or formula. And so, yeah, like, like I think that he was definitely trying to give a, a, a message about the universal power of love, baby, which, you know, there's not enough movies about. <laughs> there are. I mean, yeah, that's another thing is that it's really hard not to be cynical these days because that's what seemingly everybody wants. And so anytime you're creating something that's sincere and emotional, you're you're taking a chance. Yeah. And and yeah. Wow. But, today. you know, I just I I mean, I hope I'm not always this person on this podcast the like four times I've been on it. But I do feel pretty cynically about about this. I mean, I don't think I, I could not watch those scenes with this talk about love and whatnot and see them as anything other than like completely contrived. I admit that I got teary eyed a couple times, like when when Cooper is in that fifth dimension or he's in the three dimensional space built by the fifth dimensional beings. And he's screaming, don't go, don't leave, stay, stay, stay. I mean, yeah, I was definitely crying then. And he 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 nailed that part. But Anne Hathaway's speech about love, I did not, I didn't, yeah, I don't know that I no, felt like I, it was going there. I felt like it was, you could find that basically like at any anywhere. It didn't seem um I guess I'm just or, doing a... I guess I'm just doing a script analysis. As far as whether or not Nolan achieved it dramatically, I'm kind of with you. Those scenes don't really do it for me. No, they are absurd. Like, it, it, it honestly comes off like, it, you know, the music swells. She's crying. It's this slow zoom into her face. And what she's basically saying is, can we just sacrifice all of humanity because exactly. I have a crush on this man on another planet? Like, if you can take it that way, the cynical way, or you can take it the way that she's saying in love is everything so let's all go find my crush yeah, on but, this planet it's pretty absurd and, but that's and where it's the sense it's, but... it's juxtaposed to um to the to the to the man that they find on the planet right dr man where he just says look it's it's basic biology it's basic biology like you wouldn't choose to save humanity over your own children you choose to save your children because biologically you're programmed to want to save your genetic material but not like the genetic material of your whole species so you have these two very gendered actually uh representations of the two ways you could interpret something like filial relationships one um hers is kind of more of a kinship model like you know these things uh, matter for reasons that we might not understand that kind of exceed in some ways our knowledge of them and we ought to take that seriously and then Dr. Mann is like, this doesn't exceed anything. This is just like basic. We know this shit is the case. You're going to make crappy decisions if it's between the rest of humanity and your kids. And, and you know, you're going to. So it's interesting to have these two positions juxtaposed so uh, distinctly. And ultimately, of course, her position wins out with McConaughey's speech about like love, maybe being, you know, like being part of the universe and um, everything. So, he, yeah, his obviously wins. But 
I don't know that I, that makes me well, more sympathetic to, to that. Well, see, this, this is why I think the setting is so important, because we're presented with a movie in which the world is in such a dismal state where seemingly all the rational or scientific stuff that we know is pointing to the fact that it's all over. We're fucked. There's no planets in our solar system. We're on a complete decline. Soon we're not going to have any food. So in that situation, what do you do? Do you just give up or do you put faith into the unknown and just try? I think that's kind of ultimately, and, and that goes to what Dr. Man is saying as well, is that Dr. Man is basically saying, yeah, if you are if you choose between just saving your kids and saving humanity, most people are just going to save their kids. Yeah. But I think the movie is asking us to say that when faced with a dismal situation, we have to basically put all of our hope into that which is left, which is the unknown, the emotional, the irrational, and then maybe that will grant us salvation. Yeah, so for me, so me, for me, I mean, I again, I I I appreciate the categorization of some of these things as the unknown. Um as like taking some kind of of chance on things that are maybe not just unknown but actually incalculable um in a particular way but so much of this movie seems to it might have one thing that it's trying to achieve with its kind of form and another that it actually achieves with its content and the thing that it actually seems to achieve with its content is a, is a is a diminishment of being able to take anything other than science and progress seriously right um so love of land love of earth kinship with these other relationships none of those things are taken seriously throughout the film at all in precisely the quotes that you just stated of cooper's right like we used to be explorers and pioneers right we used to be yeah those sorts of things and now wait so all we can do is be caretakers and that that right and that's like an extremely diminishing way of thinking about what is supposed to be happening with the earth or this relationship to other kinds of bodies. So I think Cooper's as a figure, sure, he does learn something about love, but it's basically that love gets incorporated into this existing paradigm that he has, that the whole point of humanity is to exceed these natural conditions. We were born on earth, but we were never meant to die here, this sort of thing. Um, and it's not so much about like the unknown as this like science is going to save us and maybe there's this role for humanity in that but it's the role of love is less important than this desire to like pursue these pioneering um efforts like into oblivion if that's what it takes does that does that make well, sense I, I i would just push back again because i think that nolan is quite smart in how he sets up basically the setting of the movie because it's love that makes him say all right i'm not just going to go off and noah's ark this ship and build uh, a new humanity on this other planet no i'm going to try to save my daughter and the other people on the planet and it's only through doing that that he's able to actually achieve save salvation yeah. to save the planet so it is like like faith in an irrational force love instinct whatever allows him to go into the black hole and to 
trust the five dimensional beings, yes, four dimensional but, but beings, whatever dimensional beings. Five dimensional beings, right? He he trusts them, and it, to him it is irrational. But it's 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 fundamentally part of. I mean, he gives that spiel about these beings. Um, used they used to have the form of humans, perhaps, and now they've ascended to this higher dimension, right? So he's still th that, and he, that whole scene is structured through like these other beings have been able to to create this particular space so that your mind can handle what's happening in here, and they're going to help you in this way and this way, and it, it's it's still very um, within the realm of calculation. With it's not it's not the unknowable or the unthinkable. It's like love can maybe be added to this reality um yeah of science but well, but really it's still all about the science and if love weren't useful it in the scientific way it would it would not be interesting in the movie or not be valorized like the kinds of loves again that are happening throughout the rest of the movie this the like you know the love of the earth or the caretaking of these other kinds of relationships those are not valorized and those don't save anybody in fact you know you see crop burning at one point to kind of try and make that point that th there are some kinds of loves that the movie really shits on and then there's just this one that gets incorporated in this like seamless way but it gets incorporated precisely into a kind of scientific a futuristic scientific paradigm about the nature of dimensions one of which might eventually turn out to be something like love so it's not the love that so exceeds it it's that love is able to be kind of swallowed by it and taken it and given an account of within it for for that purpose right but i think that's part of his mission as a practical direction for humanity it, we should not relegate certain things to the forever unknowable we should look at the things that we don't know and look at them with curiosity and pursue them with all of our curiosity and our creativity and our might and try to incorporate them into an understandable framework. So get, let me know if I'm getting this right. You're saying that by denying any kind of completely transcendent force like love or like a, you know, these aren't gods, they're fifth dimensional aliens that is that that's like a cynicism that you're well no i was i was simply pushing back against the claim that that this is a valorization of the unknowable or of that sort of thing because i i actually think well that, that we should pursue unknowable. okay it's, it's okay a claim about so how I... things might be knowable in ways we just currently don't understand yes. okay so i agree with you yeah that's a mistake on my part so i do think that the movie is about there are things that are unknown and instead of just ignoring it whether they be emotions or things that we don't traditionally think of in a scientific paradigm, we should still pursue yeah. those with all of our and use our creativity yeah. and our pioneering ethos to try and incorporate yeah. those into an understandable framework. Yeah, yeah, what, exactly. Yeah. But all, but only certain ones, which, which, yeah, which I mean, understandably, a movie can't do everything. But yeah, there are only sort of certain kind of affects that get taken up in the movie as things that are valuable, or like this particular love between he and his daughter, or between. Um, yeah, whatever that. Um, yeah, the woman and the and the man on the planet. Um, sorry, I can't remember the names. So, Edmonton. Yeah, so like those two th seem to be, um, they they become important in ways that other kinds of affections throughout the throughout the film or other kinds of loves. Like what what get, what are the other ones that? Like what are those? Like the one between his uh, his son who's who is uh, taking care of the crops and his love for the sustaining fellow man or his love for his son who's getting sick. Are, are those the other examples yeah, of love, love you're love talking about? Yeah, or his love for the land or, um, yeah, th those, those other sorts of, yeah. Dark by saying the, the brother kind of represents these, these affects that don't, aren't able to get taken up into this structure quite so easily. Like he has this dedication to this practice that seems very irrational in the context of, 
we're all going to die anyway. Um, and he has this particular relationship to the land and to the crops and not just sustaining other humans, but right to the space. He's like, my, you know, my, our grandpa's buried out back and Jesse's buried out back. And right there are all these other kinds of cares that the film treats really casually or uh, doesn't seem like they're, they're not important, not only to the to the ultimate like conclusion or narrative but they actually take a backseat and are even kind of poo-pooed in some ways as not being um part of a grand solution some kind of grand scientific solution to save humanity yeah i'm gonna agree with you there because one part of the movie that bothers me is of course murph burning down her brother's crops just to get enough time to chill with the ghost to take this wild you know, 0.001% chance that this bookshelf that gave her some creepy shit when she was a kid yeah. might give her the answer to an equation that's going to save all of humanity. Yeah. And even I was watching with my girlfriend and when she comes back and uh, the brother is, you know, he just is probably super pissed that he just had to put out a big fire, risk his life. She just burned down crops that were going to probably feed his community. And she just comes up and hugs him and says, Dad was with us uh, all yes, along. I in real life. that spot, yeah. And, and he just that. lets it, her hug him after she's lit. Yeah, lit dude, she would not have crop. finished. Yeah. She would not have finished that sentence. He would have punched her in the face. Yeah, <laughs> yeah very, very weird. But but yeah, for, for me, that's that's part of. So, so one of the frustrations when this when the movie came out was I think a lot of like the environmental community thought, okay, great, we finally, we've got this like big blockbuster film being made by this big blockbuster director that's going to, the premise of which is humans have royally effed up the earth or something's royally effed up the earth. And now now there's this, um, this fungus or, you know, this ammonia eating thing that is going to be turning our air, removing the oxygen from our air. And we're going to get an account of like some kind of climate change or some kind of climate crisis. But all of the science in the movie kind of took for granted that we couldn't solve any of the problems on Earth. It was like, what we have to do is kind of reach for the stars, which which is fine because, I mean, literally thousands of other scientific books have and movies and you know all sorts of things have have done that. But it was so old that 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 was just such an unimpressive plot to begin with. And then to not really give an account of how stuff went wrong on earth in other words it doesn't seem like when they get to the stars anything's going to go much better than it did on earth um because they haven't actually developed any kind of ecological care for anything it's still this like absolutely human-centric um kind of obsession with the sorts of capacities that humans have that are going to save us from things we mucked up and they're going to kind of fix themselves we hope and we hope the next planet will you know will not do the same thing there so this, well, now that they have yeah. the gravity equation, they can literally just uh, fuck that planet up which and then was, hop to I'm, another one or chill on the space station for a bit. And you know another thing, what which when when, when because because you know my question, you know, you see that big that big thing that's carrying people into space, um, and it's yeah. not unclear, it, or it's it's rather pretty unclear how many of the humans or other species on Earth actually make it off the planet. You know that a couple of the key characters do, but like, you know, presumably we're supposed to believe every living Homo sapien made it off the planet alive. Well, we don't know how many living Homo sapiens there were on the planet that survived this war that they allude to, as well right. as the climate so, crisis. So, so it could just be not that many. Is probably there, and there wasn't some like you know lottery or something to get them up there. So like, let's just give them benefit of the doubt and say they're all up there. Why would the solution be for him to go back in time just to hurt his daughter's, you know? Um, 
bedroom to solve a problem, why not go back in time, you know, 200 years before that and affect some other part of... That's what the 5D people uh, offered to him. That was they offered him and no, I'm not, but not he, he could movie. only... Like, why would Nolan structure it such that the only solution oh. was that... It's like, it's, you know, I mean, it's just, he, yeah, since he did that, what well, that's fine, whatever. It just, when he was doing that, I thought, well, how weird, you know, because if you really had this kind of attachment to the earth or to this, this wonderful place that Matthew McConaughey at least says once or twice, he thinks is like a pretty neat spot. It's home, right? He says, why wouldn't you go back earlier than that and try to save that planet instead of just being like, I'm just going to go back like 15 years and just enough time to, to I, save I, what's happening would... right now. Well, because that would make it an Earth-centric movie. And when you're Nolan and a studio is giving you a blank check to basically make your fantasy version of 2001 A Space Odyssey, you want to make a fucking space movie. You want to go into space and, you know, revel in the stars and have the answer to all the mysteries of life lie out there in the stars and ponder them. Yeah, Uh, yeah, I I just don't think he didn't want to make a climate change movie. He wanted that to be in the background. Well, and, yeah, that, that's what I mean. Yeah, and, well, this and is I a just, climate change movie. I would call it. You what? Kind of. I, I would call this a climate change movie in a way. I mean, it's a bit well, I guess, simple to the plot. It is. Absolutely it is, but they don't the plot, yeah. solve it other than just like, well, let's get the fuck out of yeah, here. Right. Exactly. Right. Yeah, and that 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 is just like um, that to me feels like yeah, if if you want to make millions or have some fun, that that's but it's not philosophically interesting in in any way, and pales actually in comparison to other kinds of science fiction projects that have tried to think similar problems and like what about space or under what conditions and you know do we have a moral right to go into space or what about other planets and these sorts of things that have been trying to think through this and Nolan's is fine and it's entertaining but it, it feels like kind of morally bankrupt in that way that it, it kind of uses this as a plot but then doesn't actually engage in the ethics of it which however is interesting because I will say I'm teaching ethics right now and there is like Aristotelian ethics in that film like really straight up statements like you it's not what you do it's also how you do it right and your motivation for do it which is straight up virtue ethics there's like deontological kantian ethics um that you have a duty to do this for this reason and this reason there's utilitarian ethics so i've been considering having my students watch it just as this like kind of summary of the last couple thousand years of ethical theories which are all really explicitly at work in the theme which i do think nolan kind of got right even if i don't like much else so that's yeah, see, interesting i i would disagree that, that 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 the fact that he doesn't issue any sort of solution is a problem like to me it's just a cool setting for a sci-fi movie and it's almost like a MacGuffin. it's like all right the problem facing humanity is global warming we all know about it and we all know it's gonna fuck up the earth and to me it's kind of cool that he just has it's like post, like you guys said, war, post Dust Bowl. It's like we don't know how many human beings are even on the planet still. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. can just tell that they're that they're in a awful situation. And uh, yeah, I kind of like the fact that it's kind of minimalist in that regard. Um, but with the whole unknowable thing, I, I think that the 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 fact that he made it, you know, uh, uh, isolate this isolated moment about the bookshelf and stuff. I kind of think it's cool because I think that that's like a, uh, the fundamental scene of the movie. There's very, very few movies uh, visualize the unknown in a good cinematic way. And because yeah, it's always true. weird because, yeah. you, you know, there's always like, well, what made those people? You know, the Matrix kind of fucked it up with the, the architect dude. Then there's that movie Knowing that me and Jared love where oh, yeah. I don't want to 
spoiler alert for the movie knowing if you haven't seen it stop now but but basically yeah they end up on a planet at the end and they're just wandering with these beings and you're like okay i guess that's who was behind the rest of the movie but where did they come from you know uh that kind of thing this is was a was a very interesting i i can i definitely remember while i was watching it the first time kind of being like what the fuck is going on but like i alluded to in the beginning i think the fact that this movie is about the unknowable and they don't explain the unknowable creatures. We never see a, a, an alien looking bright light person. You know, we, it's just Matthew McConaughey in this weird prism world. And we, and he kind of is talking to himself basically, or talking to the computer and kind of figuring it out as he's going along, which I thought was a very interesting way to cinematically visualize the, the unknown. So I give, I, no do, oh, yeah. I do agree with that. It was an interesting way to visualize the unknown. Super cool. And you could argue, well, the movie goes out of its way to explain why exactly you can never see one of these fifth dimensional beings. Yes, it does. Because he says that even they have to like dumb down this thing into a tesseract so I can, me, a three dimensional being, see it. But you could argue that they do meet. There's that scene where they're going through the black hole and Anne Hathaway's hand starts to like phase in and out or something like that. And then she's like, the first handshake. Because. I mean, that might be the closest thing to any kind of interaction with these beings that we could ever physically experience. So you could argue that they do meet. I, I like that the ex, that part of the explanation is that we can't fathom the explanation. <laughs> and so, because to me, that, that works. Just like your favorite movie. What was that movie that we watched? Uh, the Visitor? Oh, yeah, baby. Love if you, <laughs> yeah. If anyone out there, go see The Fucking Visitor, top 20 for me it's an amazing film and watch it not at the highest volume not, pump it up now we're talking about you got to qualify because there was a movie called the visitor that came out a couple years ago that's not the one you're talking about no not that it hasn't it came out in the 70s 1978 it, it stars uh uh, uh john houston um and well, oh, he's yeah. like a side character he's the visitor but it's a great movie there's a lot of other weird characters there too i'm forgetting all of them though right now but it's an amazing film it's a it's a basically like an omen exorcist ripoff but better <laughs> all right so i there's a whole lot of smart small granular smart stuff that i have to get through or else people will be mad so um so let's just talk about uh and rebecca kind of already brought this up but let's get a little deeper into it just on the nature of human connectedness so starts off professor brand like rebecca already said fears that humans won't cooperate merely to save the future of the human race they need to believe that they or their loved ones could be saved this is later echoed in dr man he seems to prove his belief but then of course his cowardice emerges when he's faced with his own death yeah he proves that saving the species turned out to not be enough for him once he realized he won't also be saved so he fakes his data and activates his beacon in hopes of rescue, even though it might endanger the human race. And then there's a couple shout outs, I think one or two in the movie to Heart of Darkness. And I think that's meant to liken man to Kurtz because uh, in Heart of Darkness, when um, I always get the character names confused between Apocalypse Now and Heart of Darkness, one of them is Marlowe and one of them is Willard. Which one is Heart of Darkness? Marlowe, right? Well, Heart of it's, Darkness, you're talking about the Doc? It's Coppola, right? <laughs> no, Hearts of Darkness. I'm talking about the, uh -oh. the, the Heart of Darkness is the Joseph Conrad novel that uh, John right. Melius adapted for Apocalypse Now. Anyway, I think it's Marlowe. I couldn't tell you. So when Marlowe is going upriver, all he talks about is how Kurtz is the most legendary, awesome man. And then similarly in this movie, 
they're always talking about how man is the best of us. And then similarly, as uh, so when he finds Kurtz, he finds that Kurtz basically lost his mind, similarly to man losing his mind. Um, so let's see what else I got here. So at first, it seems that Cooper is about to also agree with Brand. At the beginning of the movie, he seems to agree. He says that, I've got kids, Professor, and then Brand has to convince him to go out there and save them. And initially, when he realizes that Plan A was a lie, Plan A was the idea that we were going to save everyone on Earth. But when he realizes that Dr. Brand had no hope of actually achieving that equation, he wants to go back and save his children, and he wants to go home. But because he is, I guess, better than man... I don't know how how yeah. literally we're supposed to take any kind of like religious thing with Cooper, but he basically ejects out of the spaceship so that Amelia could go restart the human species and he would sacrifice himself. Well, I, th- I wonder if that's a question though, because because for me that the the species versus individual or species versus kinship question is a is a really interesting one. It, it might be the most interesting question that the movie deals with. Um, I mean, in my opinion. And I, I wondered at that part if he was exiting to save humanity or if he was exiting to save her. I, I it's actually unclear to me that he's making the, that he's making this because of some grand, larger human destiny. I don't think in he had stars. feelings. I don't feel like he. I don't think he had feelings for Anne Hathaway's no, no. character. If I mean, that's what you're you suggesting. Don't need to have feelings to be self-sacrificial in that kind of way. But I, I, I mean, I'm just suggesting that there's something about the interpersonal relationship that you see kind of um, not platonically bloom throughout the course of the film. That that was the push, right? So that seemed to me what was the kind of necessary and maybe even sufficient condition for his sacrifice there. I'm just saying. I'm just saying that I, I I don't know that I would necessarily agree with the interpretation that I did it in order to save quote unquote humanity. Um, I might be inclined to say that he's kind of driven by these much more interpersonal relationships, and that he was doing it more or less explicitly for her. And it was nice that she happened to be carrying all the babes that you know could like repopulate. And I'm sure that might have been part of the part of the whatever calculation. Are you saying that? Are you saying that you don't? Th- think that's what nolan was going for or you don't know if that's what he achieved because i would say he's probably going for him being totally self-sacrificial for humanity now whether or not you buy that whether or not you buy that because of the way the film is dramatized i think is a separate question yeah i don't know and i I mean you're the nolan i was gonna say freaks you guys are the nolan freaks around here (laughs) (laughs) you can say that so it's um, impossible to offend so i I don't actually know if i could speculate on his intentions there but i would i would say for sure that throughout the film he doesn't seem like he's bad like that he's like the best of humanity in any way he seems like he's he's a good good he might be the best pilot in humanity but that he's otherwise just a regular guy who's got like affections for his kids and immediately wants to go home to be with them at the i mean knowing that that would cost humanity humanity's continued existence and that way he doesn't make a choice that's necessarily that different from dr man's choice he's still like no humanity is not as interesting or important or i'm not i'm not as concerned about them as i am about my kids they're my number one priority and he maintains that basically up until the very second because they're going home right that or that was they were like okay now we can't go home so now what do we do but that was their first goal he immediately was like let's abandon this whole project and just get the fuck home so i can be with my kids maybe hopefully they won't be dead by the time we get there 
Um, and then it's kind of at the last minute that they begin to make other kinds of decisions. And so I was just saying, I don't know if I can, I think my reading would still be consistent with the rest of the things we see Nolan doing, whether or not it's actually his intention that that he sacrif that Cooper sacrifices himself just for her or for humanity as well. I think my reading would be consistent that he does it primarily for that interpersonal relationship. And that that might even be the thing which makes humanity so meaningful and worth anything. Like if we're worth saving, it's for, it's not because of our fucking science. It's because we have these relationships that, that ought to be able to get maintained. Um, so that might be maybe the one like sort of saving grace of the kind of film like that. If that makes sense. Well, d yeah, it does. Now, despite my Nolan freakery, I think that... <laughs> no, it's all good. Um, I think the one thing that you can point to that would probably solidify that at least what he's going for is that Coop does sacrifice himself to mankind is the fact that there's Christological right. shit going on all over here. You're right. There, so there's yes, that's true. He does church, like that. Yeah, church organs dominate the score. Yes. Uh, the NASA mission is named Lazarus. You're right. Uh, You're the, right. Basically, the ship is a big old Noah's Ark. Uh, you could even say man is a fallen angel. There's there's more you can get into. I don't really... The Book of Matthew. What about Matthew the Book McConaughey? of Matthew? Uh, Matthew McConaughey. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So let's talk about this last thing I want to get to is let's talk about love, guys. Oh, baby. Oh, let's. Love it. Let's do it. Okay. So just, just on the surface level of... Coop going into the Tesseract and saying that love is the only thing, it's through our love that I'm able to communicate with Murph. Does that make sense to you? Because to me, it seems no. like what's allowing him to communicate is that he's like banging on books and using Morse code. Is it just, is it just that the only thing that allows her to wonder if there's a greater message behind the weird shit going on in the library is love? I don't I don't I'm sorry like I I just don't get it I I think that that it's it's you're right it's a it's a stretch <laughs> but uh, uh I think that it's the fact that you know Murph but you know all the wisdom that she's given by her dad and all of just kind of like she she kind of sees the dust on the ground and is like you know what what if maybe I, my mind is so open because of my my love for my dad and maybe his knowledge is what's driving me to come up with this equation and blah 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 it's weird i i kind of am on your side it's i don't know if i buy it i mean is it, it well no i don't buy any of the love stuff that happens pretty much throughout yeah. the whole movie so i basically I just threw my hands up yeah in the air and that was said, weird sure I mean, christopher nolan it might have been the case that that love because he 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 makes I mean I forget the exact wording but he makes this kind of claim that he was brought here to this particular moment in right because of his love for Murph and that so maybe it's I mean I also think that maybe the fact that she loves him and is thus willing to be kind of more open to the possibility and wants him and wants him back so so desperately that she's willing to be open to possibilities that any sane person would not be open to um mm, I, I i yeah right. i think that might be one of the, the only intelligible readings of, of that but he does make some kind of claim about love being the force that brought him to this particular moment as opposed to you know like the, maybe the fifth dimensional aliens knew that he loved this person and so they brought him here and that allows him to have this chance you know, as opposed to if he didn't love anybody, they would be like, well, who are we going to show this guy? We don't know. Right. Exactly. You know? Yeah, yeah. So it, it makes it the, the, like, like, the like, fifth like, dimensional. Like, a go ahead, Ryan. Uh, uh, yeah, I was just saying that that 
he was reading into the intentions of the aliens yeah, yeah. and was like, all right, you know, love, you know, they understand love. They understand yes. this shit that that's important. And then the fact that, you know, he went into the black hole to begin with, like y'all are saying, it's like half humanity, half for his family. So, you know, he, it's just love in general. So, yeah. I mean, like if he had nobody, would he be doing that? You know, I don't know. Maybe it uh, does kind of undercut the magic. And I think this is what you were saying before, Rebecca is that it's seemingly the fifth dimensional aliens are just like, all right, we need to get this message across somehow. The only way we can do that is by presenting this situation where someone might be able yes. to comprehend what he's saying. <laughs> yeah. And I guess it's because of their love or – I mean, it could just as equally be that she's really superstitious and would actually buy into this shit, you know, just as much it is as it yes. is love. Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. I, 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 I agree. Because at the very beginning, at the beginning when she's a kid, there's absolutely no reason for for her to be. I mean, why did, why wouldn't she just believe her father when when her dad says there's nothing here? Like she doesn't. She could just as easily let it go, but she stays insistent in this way, and it has nothing to do with love, like at all. It's just she's a kid and she's interested and she thinks it's happening for some you know, she thinks there's this higher thing as, as all kids do, right? We try to make kids make meaning out of everything. So yeah, I don't think that that, that the white, like the reason that she even took down these things as notes in the first place, which is the condition for the possibility of her returning to them later and making any kind of sense out of them. That has nothing to do with love. That was like basically kind of pure chance that she did that. Or maybe it's love of science or maybe it's love of <laughs> the unknown. You know, maybe it's those sorts maybe of she just, that made her do yeah, that instead of a relational she love. Really, she really likes watching Ancient Aliens on History Channel. And yes. This, it, it just inspired her to look really closely at the bookshelf, at the bookshelf. where weird shit used to happen. I mean, I've been staring at my bookshelf for a long time now and I, no one's talking to <laughs> me. Uh, about all this stuff, I wonder in the development of this movie, because uh, I don't know if you, I don't think you brought this up yet, Jared. Like, you know, this movie was developed by these theoretical physicists. And then, and then it was, uh, Steven Spielberg was attached to it for like a decade or more. Right. And uh, uh, so I would, I wonder what Steven Spielberg's version of this movie would be. And I, and cause, cause the screenplay is credited to Chris and Jonathan Nolan. And I assume, I don't know if they brought all of the love stuff, half of it. Was that, you know, where did that, was that in the Steven Spielberg version of this? You know, I don't know. It's all theoretical. I can imagine the Spielberg version would have, would have been way, way, way schmaltzier. Really? This is pretty schmaltzy, dude. Dude, when was the last time you saw War Horse? It's, <laughs> it's unwatchable. <laughs> I saw Ready Player One, and that was fucking hardcore to the max, baby. Yeah, it was. Okay, well, I didn't, I didn't see that. Oh, you missed out. <laughs> you, 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 liked, you liked that, Rebecca? Um, I liked the book. Yeah, you know... We got to bring you on more sci-fi stuff because I feel like you you have such strong opinions on sci-fi stuff, and I never know if it's <laughs> really going to be do. a hated or a love it. Yeah. No, but that's great. That's what we want. All right. Anything else you guys want to bring up before we go into the mailbag? Yeah, I I want to bring up how awesome. Uh, I I really love watching fa uh, actors, especially famous actors, cry really hard on camera. Me too. There's just something about it that gets me, and that's Matthew McConaughey's scene with him crying is so awesome. Uh, you know, when his yeah. kids are all grown up. Such a good, he's the and, real fucking deal. Say what? He's the real deal. He's a real deal. Just a great and actor, I wanted yeah. to bring up some of my. Uh, uh, I think it's in the top five cinematic cries. And so, what? What are y'all's other favorite c uh, film cries? Mm. Oh, definitely Tom Cruise and Magnolia. Yeah. Ooh. When he's sitting by his father's deathbed. Yep. 
It's good. It's a good one. I was going to say Forrest Gump at the end of Forrest Gump when he's at Jenny's grave. That always gets me. Ooh, oh, yeah. yeah uh, Anthony Michael Hall in The Breakfast Club at the end when he's breaking down. Oh, yeah. That's such a good one. Suicide. Uh, uh, Elliot at the end of E.T. You know, also, what a good... Yeah. When kids can cry on camera, that's even... And especially with a fucking puppet alien right there. Jesus. And then <laughs> I'd, I'd give my fourth slot to Anna Chumsley from My Girl. When 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 Matthew when, when Macaulay Culkin dies, ah <laughs> uh, yeah, that yeah, got that me as a movie kid. Too. Yeah, I, yeah I, well, I mean, for me, that I I just I just I'm such an empathetic crier. I mean, you ha- you can be like a really shitty crier, and I will still believe you 100. <laughs> percent So while I do enjoy those who can cry really well, I also have very like a lot of trouble differentiating between the quality of their cries because I'm just sold instantly. Yeah, so little bit about me <laughs> if you guys want to share your favorite cries from cinema with us hit us with an email at movies at wisecrack.co i'd love to hear fa- i'd love i'd love to hear some of our fans favorite cries hashtag <laughs> okay we got some uh voicemails about inglorious bastards once again if you want to give us a call leave us a voicemail 213-534-8807 or 21 elf gut 07 that's right let's go baby. with Greg, Greg, about Inglorious Bastards. Hey, Wisecrack, this is Greg from Philadelphia. Um, I just finished listening to the Inglorious Bastards podcast, and I was curious, you guys were talking about Lambda and how maybe it would have been a little bit more satisfying if he got shot in the end instead of getting branded with that Nazi symbol. But what I kind of was thinking when I saw that was that um, that was kind of a kind of symbolic thing for Germany and kind of the German people as a whole a lot of whom weren't, obviously weren't exactly acting out the things the Nazis were doing, a lot of, you know, the average citizens and whatnot, but they were complicit in the actions at the time due to, obviously, a lot of tension and frustration from the end of World War One and how the country was doing then. So, in a way, they were kind of complicit, so I took that mark as kind of a way to kind of comment upon how the German people still feel the effects from Nazi Germany today. And I just kind of want to get your guys' thoughts on that. Uh, love the podcast. Thank you guys very much. Bye. Thank you, Greg. Interesting. I love no, it. No, I think he, I think he hit the nail on the I head. So, I definitely think that's what, I definitely think that's what's, that's what they're going for. I was bringing up, I guess, I think in the podcast I was asking like, what would be the difference and, and it was also particularly that Landa's one of the most grotesque Nazis. Now, I know there's a whole discussion about whether or not he actually adheres to the ideology of the Third Reich or if he's just doing it for fun. I don't know if that makes it better or worse. But I guess we see all these people who are murdered to be brought to, quote, justice. And I was wondering, well, how does that make him any different? And should he also be murdered and brought to justice? But I think in terms of creating a movie with an ending that is an ending that's meaningful— and has symbolic weight to it, I think Greg hit the nail on the head. Well, and it also has the meta meaning of being his, about the movie Inglorious Bastards, right? Because he says it's his masterpiece. My masterpiece, <laughs> that's right. Oh, yeah. Uh, and also, you know, there's something really, um, right, so, you know, Hannah Arendt wrote this, wrote this uh, piece about Eichmann in Jerusalem about the Nazis and about how you punish people who were participating in the Nazi... Uh, system but who weren't you know totally 
who didn't actually burn anybody in the death camps or right, didn't didn't do anything explicit, but they might have signed a couple papers or like pushed some buttons for the trains or like done something else, right? And I think that there's the, one of the one of the questions that she raises is not just what well, how do we think about kind of people who are evil in a way that we don't usually recognize, which is, you know, which is like kind of like a more passive evil, which is surely not what Landa is. He's the active kind of evil. But the other question that she raises is what do you do with these kind of people? And like, how do you, how do you, how, how can you possibly attempt to receive justice by killing somebody who did that? Because obviously that that is just so incomparable a, um, a, a solution to what was an, an unimaginable crime. So for me, it also kind of harkens to this kind of Jewish philosophical problem of how you deal with Nazis and whether or not just killing them is actually adequate in any way, if that's in any, even any way satisfying for the victims of these kind of crimes. And so, I mean, I don't know if that's what was what was aimed at, but I think that's an interesting, it's interesting to think about how that kind of what we would think as a kind of maybe Western audience, but right? now you just kill the bad guys. Like that's like obviously what you do. Um, how this might be this nod to uh, quite a bit of ambivalence within the Jewish philosophical tradition about how you deal with justice and unjust or evil people um, without turning into an inhuman, you know, monster or unjust person yourself. So, so yeah, going along with what our fantastic guest said, because that was, I really agree with that. I think that's excellent. It might This might also be an interesting kind of companion thought to that one. Yeah, I think that's one of the central questions that you have to think about when evaluating that movie. Um, anyway, so let's do one more on Inglorious Bastards, and then we'll go to us. This one's from Jessica. Hey, Wisecrack, this is Jessica from Alabama, and I'm currently listening to you guys' Inglorious Bastards um, podcast, and... Y'all have gotten to the end, you come to the mailbag, so I figure y'all are really done talking about this movie. Um, and y'all are talking about the the ending and how you think it could have been better. And I really disagree with you guys for two really important reasons. So you guys are saying that you think that Shoshana should have lived and Aldo should have died. Um, and I disagree with that a lot. For one of the things that you guys have already kind of pointed out and stated, and that is, not only do we see cinematically the way she dies is very, um, like, glorified and beautiful, um, but in her choosing to die, because she never intended to come out of it alive, and she says that when she's planning it, um, she's choosing to give her life and kind of become uh, immortalized in the eyes of not only Nazis but Jews. Because she will be known forever as the person who was hiding and gave up her life to kill Hitler. Like she's immortalized in history the way someone, only someone like Anne Frank would be and kind of glorified for the, for forever. I also feel like it's really important that Aldo survives until the, till the end because he is our symbol of aggression and <clears throat> this kind of revenge that we get and and when you look at when you look at it this is a revisionist history um film but there's things about history that you can't change you can't unkill the jews that died um and that kind of calls back to uh shoshana's death and the finality of it you can't unkill um you can't undo some things um and 
in any outcome, you're going to have the traders who bargain their way into trying to escape the horror of what they've done. Um, and I think you need Aldo as that symbol, that person to mark, because when he marks um, the Nazi, I can't think of his name right this minute, but uh, the detective, when he marks the detective Nazi, he is is metaphorically marking all Nazis and saying that in, it's up to me at this moment and you don't get to escape. And it's his idea, not Donnie's, to mark him, even though technically they shouldn't be doing it because of the agreement. They shouldn't be attacking him. He's going to get in trouble. Um, so I, I think there's something really symbolic about about killing uh Shos- Okay, I didn't cut her off. For some reason, the voicemail just cut off there. But, um, yeah, so that was actually Lux who said that, that Shoshana should live and Aldo should die. I think it works the way it is for ways that Jessica laid out. I think it was a really well-thought-out voicemail. And, yeah, that was uh, a good voicemail. Yeah. Um, anything else you guys want to add? I want to do one more before we go to the emails. Um. No, I definitely agree with her that that Shoshana's death was pretty awesome and inspiring. So, all right, all she said. let's do one from us. So, oh, by the way, I got I got uh, messages that I did not give a spoiler warning last time we did the mailbag. So, if you have not seen us, spoilers. And I guess if you haven't seen Inglorious Bastards, it's too late. <laughs> anyway, so we got a message from Heidi about us. Go, Heidi. Hi, this is Heidi calling. I just have a couple of comments on us that have spoilers and then one comment on Gary V. So I was wondering if one of the implications from us is that revolution has to come from the outside in some way, either by someone born on the outside or by someone who's been exposed to outside ideas. And the original Addie knew what was happening to the tethered people wasn't right because she grew up outside of that environment. And I wonder how the movie might have had a different message if the revolution was led by someone born within the tethered group. I also wondered why the original Addie didn't teach the tethered people to speak or at least teach her children to speak. You had also talked about the symbolism of the apple briefly, and my thought is that it likely represented the last piece of real food the original Addie would ever have. Mm. She didn't appreciate the apple at the time, but probably dreamed about it later on. And then as far as Gary Vee, There were some harsh words a few podcasts ago when talking about hustle culture, and I wanted to stick up for him a bit. So Gary Vee is known for how hard he works, but he explicitly talks about how he doesn't want to prescribe the pace of his life, and people should find the lifestyle that works best for them. He emphasizes prioritizing people over money and talks a lot about doing the right thing and keeping your commitments, even if there's a better deal offered at that moment. And... I think that the problem with hustle culture occurs when people lose sight of ethics, humanity, and empathy, but I don't think they have to be mutually exclusive, and there's a way to work hard and still honor those things. So those are just my thoughts. Love your podcast as always. Thanks. Okay, couple things. Thank you for calling in, Heidi. I remember Heidi sent us a voicemail about Vampire's Kiss, and I love that voicemail, so please call, keep calling in, Heidi. Really appreciate the thoughtful voicemails. Uh, as far as the... She's referring to an Instagrammer that Austin brought up that I don't know anything about. Do you guys know what she's talking about? No. I was hoping you were going to tell me what yeah, the third uh, part yeah. of her, her uh, Austin, Austin brought it up. 
you know what? I'm going to write this down, and we're going to have Austin on next week, and I'll, I'll have him talk about that. But as far as the Apple for us, that's the best explanation I've heard so far. As far as the revolution happening from somebody from the outside, and what would it, and why didn't she teach the people on the inside to speak? That's a good question, and especially because it, it makes me think that it almost makes it seem like part of the message of the movie is that it's trying to argue that these people who were born underground, there's nothing essential about them that makes them in this abject state where they speak in grunts and they have no education and their lives basically suck. But if you ask a question like, why didn't she teach them how to speak? And then you're kind of forced to say, well, maybe she's the only one that can speak. Maybe the scientists or whoever actually created those people or put them down there did create them in such a way to where they can't speak. So I hadn't actually thought about that. I think that maybe even pokes a couple of holes in what Peel is trying to say. So See, exactly. very interesting. These are, these are the kind of questions that I got in trouble for asking uh, at the film podcast or at Film House. You know, wait, are you telling me that you got like your your boss came in, Adam came in and was like, Ryan, uh, I guess. No, no, so, they didn't. They, yeah, it was actually a really fun conversation while I was having it. But then later on, I'm watching it and it's clearly looked like basically it came off like I. I wasn't giving it a chance, basically, and because I was asking all of these, because to me the fucking whole plot is just filled one giant plot hole. Still, you know, I've seen it twice now. I and yeah, like basically, you gotta just you can't ask those questions because to me, I want to ask all about the nature of the experiment because I do think it matters and stuff. Uh, uh, you know, why couldn't you know? Are you're telling me they couldn't run up the escalator? But yeah, to your point about, I do think that he's trying to go for the nature versus nurture thing. And yeah, it took someone that was born on the outside to teach them about, you know, to become their, their Jesus figure and, and, and overthrow the outside people. To me, it just muddies it up so much because, you know, about if, if the, if, if the others are, are still, are, are soulless versions of us, but they can't talk like you guys were saying, but then. Never mind. Yeah, I don't, I don't even that, want to talk no, about this movie anymore. It what what you're saying, what you're saying is, if the point of the movie is to dissolve the distinction of us versus them, but then right. if you ask questions, there's only more reasons that point to the fact that there is a difference between us versus them. Then the movie's contradicting its own, like subtextual logic. Right. Like it, 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 he should have made if if the whole point was oh if you take the same body and being of a person and you just raise them differently what what will happen that's a cool premise but it was well that is I think what he way. is trying to say what? no I I think that is what he's trying to say yeah but it's just so muddy and it just so there's so many lingering questions about the the uh, the nature of the the experiment that I do that that matter that I think it, it, it it's his point is not taken very well and it's not very cinematic either. And there's so much fucking exposition. Uh, fuck us, man. You know, three out of five people that I've talked to have lukewarm to negative things to say about this movie. And I loved it and I loved it twice. And you know what? Even these things that we're talking about, I still will defend the magic of the theater experience. If I'm sitting in the theater and it captivated me and I, the tone was so precise and so well constructed that it didn't inspire me to ask erroneous questions like that. It worked. Yeah. And I loved it. You and know, I had a lot you of can... friends who see, who've seen it. It's <sighs> very popular in my department right now. My partner saw it and they all really loved it. 
they all really loved it. I mean, if, yeah. it, if Jordan Peele's name wasn't on the poster, I wonder what everyone's thoughts would actually be. Well, you know. you'll never I'm not know. Accusing Nolan's, you of that, Jared, I'm just saying a lot of people. If wasn't on Interstellar, I wonder what people's thoughts would be about that. Well, yeah, for fucking real. <laughs> so, yeah. I, I don't know, I, man. Yeah. Well, with both of them, it's not just their name on it. It's the fact that it's just saturated with Jordan Peele-isms. Well, maybe, I mean, he's only made one movie. But I would say Christopher Nolan-isms are all over Interstellar. And yeah. right, I'm not saying so that if you show... To me, like, like uh, us... It requires you having an interpretation of these very vague or not or depending on who you are, not vague, you know, uh, themes, whereas <laughs> stuff like Interstellar and stuff and Get Out works on its own. And then you can read into it like we've been doing for an hour about it. Whereas I'm not just sitting there going, wait, why did this happen in Interstellar? And because that's very clearly important to our interpretation. To me, us is just a mystery box without uh, enough of the mystery there for you to really know what's going on at the end well for me there's something i mean i didn't see the film but i'm going to do what philosophers do all the time and that is speculate wildly about something of which i know absolutely nothing um but oh, when, I, yeah. when i spoke, all there is for us though when i just when wild I speculation spoke with my partner about this he did you know he we, we kind of talked about this at one point because he was like it would have been solved if i don't know red or whatever her name was right like if there was some communication and i think so it, it's perhaps the case. So we got, then it got into this conversation about whether or not the us and the them can communicate, um, which is, of, of course, actually a very open and longstanding philosophical debate about whether or not the us actually can ever truly understand the them, or if the them always have to conform in certain ways to the us in order to be intelligible in the first place. So there's this longstanding kind of philosophical debate about that. And, and which which then makes sense that you would have a, a certain population that is basically non-communicative or, or or doesn't have speech right in the way that you think speech is supposed to be able to rationally convey certain kinds of ideas and maybe because if they had you know you don't need to go about murdering everybody you could just come up and like speak to people or you could just become a lot more clear and you might be able to solve problems differently but this this fundamental um gap in their communicative possibilities seems like it it well perhaps not narratively you know, that consistent or he maybe should have spent like a little bit more time giving a reason that that would be the case within the logic of the story. Um, yeah, for sure. It seems like that maybe was one of the most um, powerful moments for some of the people that I've been talking to about it, who, who really were able to connect that immediately to all these philosophers who are always uh, basically theorizing about the voices of the them or the they and how they can speak to the us and that sort of thing. So um yeah, so maybe that it would be worth doing something about like the, you know the the that philosophical connection, even if again it's not narratively explained. But as you can see, I clearly don't care as much about narrative explanation as I do about like well, philosophical I don't power. That's, so I, I I like ambiguous storytelling. I swear to God, I do. Is <laughs> that this kind of what he's doing in this movie? I think is just it's ambiguous storytelling, just ambiguous storytelling, and with not enough. Of the other okay. that you need. All right. Well, I'm going to end this podcast on one more email from Phi4. I think that's how I'm supposed to pronounce it. It's F-I and then the Roman numeral 4. And he has a completely different take on the movie that I haven't heard before. And when we're saying to ourselves, like, if this deliberately vague storytelling is just muddying what we think is supposed to be the primary interpretation, he's suggesting that... Well, let's just read his interpretation, because I think one of the strengths of this might be the fact that it can be read in a totally different way. So, 
Phi 4 or Fee 4 says, the movie seems to me like a commentary on immigrants and natives, as well as what it really means to be American. The family that we follow is supposed to be civilized because they speak English and are relatable, while the tethered are perceived as not civilized because they have different culture and language. They only make strange sounds and uh, sound foreign to the protagonist. The tethered family seem to understand each other just fine through the sounds they're making. This is often how Americans perceive immigrants or Native Americans. Just because others do not speak the same language, English, as us, it is not meant that they are uneducated or less than. Immigrants come to America, a developed nation, for better education and opportunities, but are still considered invisible. Not our problem. Secondary to the real Americans or even subhuman. They're villainized, as are the tethered in the movie. The only way they are able to succeed is do what Adelaide has done. To take fate into your own hands and assimilate. Lose the accent, forget the roots, and pretend that you have been American all along. Following the analogy of the above being America and below being developed countries, the imitation that the clones do of the people from above, I think, is a commentary on how developing nations try to mimic what the developed ones do in hopes to catch up but cannot due to their circumstances and environment. Uh, the constant motif of coasts and boats may be another reference to immigration, and the bunnies are, in my opinion, symbolic of overpopulation as they are known to procreate a lot. Um... So he also adds, he goes on, but to say, uh, to add another theme that I've spoken about before immigration, I think there's significance in the conversation that the protagonist Adelaide has with her family at the Taylor house after they've killed all the clones. Gabe suggests that it's a good idea for them to stay, but Adelaide suggests that they go to Mexico. This points out the blatant hypocrisy in which people are against immigrants coming to their land of privilege, indifferent to the suffering of, under, of others until they're in the same situation. In the fatal circumstances, the American family of the protagonist realizes how those from war-torn or less prosperous countries feel. Their desire to escape their circumstances, they desire to they decide to drive to Mexico, a country whose people they have been trying to keep out of America. I got to be honest, when I first read, opened up 5-4's email, and I started reading, I was a little bit skeptical, but he's convinced me, and it goes back to Jordan Peele saying, I wanted this to be a personal film so that it could be interpreted a number of ways, and I think that email is proof that in some ways it is a success. Yeah. I, I, I love that interpretation. And, and to me, that's cool. Like, and, and yeah, I don't hate the movie, but I, <laughs> I just hate how it's presented. I hate how cool the of an idea it was and how shitty of an execution it was is kind of my real big frustration with it. Yeah. Cause that, all that sounds awesome. It's just at the end of the day though, still, it's like, I don't have a clone of me in Mexico you know, that is, you know, like, like I, it doesn't make sense. The cloning part of it, if it, if it was just weird tunnel people that didn't get a chance to live, you know, it, it have the privilege of being above ground then that I start, you know, that makes sense to me, but. Well, the cloning seems like it's essential because that, I mean, yeah, first of all, that's like a kind of tried and true kind of speculative fiction trope for thinking about us, them. That is like one of the ones to think about like the original versus the not original, right? Does that even make sense if you're identical copies of one another? Um, I th yeah, so it, it's kind of this homage to this other really, you know, extensive literature that's trying to think through the us them problem precisely with something like clones but also right the point of clones is that we they are us they're not other people who are a little bit different but that they really they are the us in most of the ways that really matter but they're literally us I, yeah exactly i mean so the, the literal bit is 
is a kind of heavy-handed clone tradition science fiction way of saying that others the other is really not the other the, the other really is us in a different circumstance under different conditions in a, a slight deviation but they're not sufficiently other um you know it, it, it like it, it would be easier for us to disidentify with them if they were some what do you call them mole people or ground people or yeah some other kind of tunnel people tunnel people tunnel people if they were just ton of people right it would be a different kind of political co commentary you might still get the us them dichotomy but literally making them us is just a sort of you cannot miss this point and again traditional sci-fi way of paying homage to this us-them structure and thinking about who gets to count as the real or the original or uh, the authentic version of some of something or some nation or some culture or some us and who gets counted as not the real or not the authentic version. So I think the high five? Five, what, five what, four. Yes, I think their point is like, yeah, I mean, I think it's, I think it's great. And I think that the, the clone structure actually allows that kind of interpretation um, a little bit more strongly than a, a, just a tunnel person interpretation would. Yeah. Again, not having seen it, but still. <laughs> I mean, it seems it seems that you know quite a bit about it, though. I do know. Yeah. I mean, I, I've heard I've heard talk. I read the Wikipedia page. <laughs> I've, Got it. I've done the research, but yeah, I haven't actually seen it yet. I just get too scared. You know, I get too scared. So. I've heard, I've heard a number of people tell me that too. Yeah. Uh, of which I'm always like, oh, right. I can. I always forget that I'm completely desensitized. Yeah. All right. We're gonna go ahead and wrap it up, guys. Thank you guys so much for listening. Where can we find you guys on the internet, Ryan? Man, it's been a big day for Ryan on the internet. A big week. I mean, I got Ryan's game show released. Uh, Extreme laundry folding episode. Uh, go check that out. And then also on Ryan Short's channel is uh, Baron in the Name of, a Baron Trump Rage Against the Machine mashup that everyone's been uh, waiting for, I, I'm sure. <laughs> I, I like it a lot. I've had it stuck in my head all day. Oh, perfect. Good. <laughs> That's good to hear. I hear good things about that. Yeah, I hear good things. <laughs> Uh, and Rebecca, you still don't have Twitter, right? No. What? What's this Get on Twitter? It. What are you talking about? Yeah. No, I don't. No, I don't. I don't. I don't either. I have nothing. So it'll make well, you feel people... awful. It's great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't need that. I don't need more of that shite in my daily life. Yeah. I have an academia.edu page, and I have just won some very cool awards. So. Oh hell yeah. Yeah. So you can see that, but I have otherwise nothing interesting. So. <laughs> All right. Well, then we're gonna go ahead and wrap it up. Send us out, Ryan. Goodbye from Hollywood, California. <laughs> Peace, guys. Ciao. Peace out.